Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Um, we are in a series uh, called Finding Jesus in Genesis. And uh, so far, it's been, it's been a lot of fun to kind of explore Genesis. Uh, what we're doing, though, in this series is we're really flexing our interpretive muscles to learn how to read the scriptures through the lens of Christ, uh, based on the conviction that Jesus is the full revelation of God, and that based on the conviction that the scripture tells a story uh, that points us to Jesus, uh, which is to say that the Bible uh, does not bear witness to itself, right? Uh, nor does the Bible ask us uh, to trust the Bible. Uh, what the Bible does is bear witness to Jesus, and the thing that the Bible invites us into is faith in Christ. Uh, and so the Bible is not saying, please believe these words. The Bible is saying, please believe in the living word, who is Christ Jesus. And so um, we're using that as a foundation. In fact, there's an example of this. Uh, Jesus even says in the scriptures, this is an example of what I was just talking about. In the scriptures, in John chapter 5, beginning with verse 39, Jesus says this to disciples, to his disciples. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that testify on my behalf. Uh, in other words, the scriptures have Jesus saying, you're looking in the scriptures for life, but it's life that is found in Christ. And, and so that's not to say, oh, put your Bibles away and don't worry about reading them. It, it's, it's, it, it's a way of saying that the scriptures are the very thing that can reliably and with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit point us to the living Christ. Uh, and, and so that's what we're doing is we're looking to find Jesus in Genesis, because what the Bible does best is serve as an inspired sign that points us to Christ. So that means we can go to all of the scriptures and expect to find Jesus there. So in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, we found Jesus as the agent of creation, uh, that the living word is uh, the, the very member of the Trinity that spoke creation into being. Uh, we also found Jesus in the proto-evangelium in the story of Genesis uh, 2 and 3 and the story of Adam and Eve. So uh, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I hope that some of you that were here last week at least uh, kind of worked proto-evangelium into one conversation that you had this week. That's my hope and that's my goal because uh, it's such a fun word, right? Uh, so hopefully you were able to work that in at some point. Uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to find Jesus in the story of Noah. We're going to find Jesus in the story of Noah. Um, I, I think buckle your seatbelts. And uh, I think uh, at one point, be prepared to be challenged, uh, maybe offended, but then we're going to come to the end and it's going to be this beautiful thing. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's uh, do our best to make our way through the story of Noah here. Uh, it, it's, it's found in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, and I'll be reading it in its entirety this morning. Some of you are like, whoa. I, saw, I can't see your faces, but I saw some eyebrows go real high, right? Like, oh man, we're going to be here a while. No, I want to read uh, Genesis chapter 6, 
Uh, 5 through 14 is our main text. I'm going to just provide a little bit of kind of closure to the story, so I'll read other portions as well. But Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 5, reading through verse 14, says this. Now the Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with the animals and creeping things and the birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt. And God, so God saw the earth was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. That's a tar-like material to make it waterproof. Genesis chapter 7, uh, 11 and 12. In the, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. The rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Skip over to Genesis chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. For the fear and the dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and every bird of the air and on everything that creeps along the ground and all the fish of the sea. For into your hands they have been delivered. This is after the flood has receded. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The story of Noah and the ark is perhaps... Uh, one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. And there is, in fact, some details in here that endear us to the story. Uh, It's one of the few Bible stories that has lots of animals in it, and we love animals, right? Uh, And and so it endears us to this story because there's lots of animals. Uh, There's also a a rainbow. We didn't read that portion, but uh, as God is making a promise to Noah, he places a rainbow in the sky. So with animals and rainbows, uh, this makes perf- for perfect material uh, of, for flannel graph boards in Sunday school classes. Uh, it makes for perfect material and uh, mural painting in church nurseries, <laughs> right? Uh, for whatever reason, this story has been elevated as a children's story in the scripture. But make no mistake, this is not a children's story. This is not a children's story. This is the story about the end of all human life except for one family. Uh, This is a story about the end of all animal life, save two of each kind. It is a story of utter destruction that is accredited to God because God regretted that he had made the world. And if we see it just sort of like that, this story should challenge our moral sensibilities 
and cause us to ask some questions, right? I mean, this should challenge our moral sensibilities and, and should really bring up some questions. And, and most often what people question when they see, begin to see this story, not as this kind of like nice nursery rhyme, uh, but as it is, the, story, the question that often comes up is about the goodness of God. Uh, how can God be good in the midst of this? Uh, and so to understand this story, uh, the story of Noah and his ark, what we need to do is we need to put away our modern glasses. Uh, that is to say, we need to set aside our modern way of seeing and viewing the world. Uh, with modern glasses on, if we keep them on and we come to the text, what we're tempted to do is we're tempted to ask questions like, how did all the animals fit in the boat? Right? We get very concrete, very, very logical, and we're like, we start doing some measurements, and we're not sure how big a cubit is, uh, but we're pretty sure it's not that big, right? Uh, and so we start kind of like making some calculations about how did all, this, all of them, two of each kind, uh, how did they fit into the ark? Somebody before service, when they found out that we were uh, talking about Noah, uh, mentioned the dinosaurs, were the dinos Are you going to answer, Pastor Andy, if the dinosaurs were on the ark? Uh, no, uh, go ask your parents. <laughs> right? Isn't that the like, classic thing? Oh, I don't like Sunday school. I'm not sure. Go ask your parents, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, but we're tempted to ask, how did animals, how did, did all the animals fit on the boat? Um, or the other thing we're tempted to ask are questions like, this, these are example questions, but questions like, how many inches of rain had to come in order to raise the sea level or raise water levels from sea level to the top of the mountains. Um, I heard a story once of a pastor coming to this text who really wanted to find out the answer to that question. That was an important piece of this story. So we started doing the math of how, if it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, how many inches of rain per hour would it have to rain to cover Mount Everest with water? 362 inches per hour for 40 days and 40 nights, if you're interested. Now, and it wasn't me. I promise it wasn't me. Some of you are like, a pastor, right? <laughs> right? Okay, it wasn't me. I didn't do the calculations. Uh, if, let me say this. I think that's, um, with love toward this colleague of mine, I think that's an exercise in missing the point. Okay? Um, these are the wrong kinds of questions. And maybe they have their place, uh, but, but they're really not going to help us understand the meaning of the story. And these kinds of questions certainly aren't going to lead us to Jesus. Uh, and so what we need to do, since this is an ancient story, we need to set aside our modern glasses, our modern way of, of seeing the world, which means we need to set aside our modern assumptions when we read this story. Uh, for example, um, we know that the earth is a round blue marble flying through space, <laughs> right? That's a crude way of putting it, but you understand what I'm saying, right? We understand uh, a lot about the, the universe, of course, not everything. In fact, probably relatively very little about the universe in which we live, but we understand enough to know uh, how that we are on a round planet that is part of this giant uni universe. Our ancient brothers and sisters had absolutely zero concept of this. To them, the world was flat. They didn't know any better, right? How could they? Uh, to them, the whole world 
the earth, was simply everything that they could see to the end of the horizon. You with me? Right? They had, there wasn't like you could jump on a plane and, and cross an ocean and get to another piece of land. Uh, there, there was, they stayed in very relatively little geographic areas throughout their entire life for generations. And so for them, quite literally, the entire world was simply what could you see to the end of the horizon? And so just as with the creation narratives, uh, we don't come to the story of Noah looking to prove history. We come with a spiritual reading of the text. Now I can tell that already some of you are nervous. And so what I'm simply trying to say is we must come to the text looking for Jesus, not looking for proof that the ark is buried in Mount Ararat somewhere, right? We come to the text looking for Jesus. Now, what is clear from historical record is that there was some sort of catastrophic flood in the ancient Near East. Archaeologists place this somewhere around 2900 BC. So what's clear is that there was a real, actual, literal, tangible flood in, ancient, in the ancient Near East. And so what happens is many ancient writers wrote about a catastrophic flood. In other words, the biblical story of the flood is one of many flood narratives in the ancient world. And as we place ourselves in the shoes of our ancient brothers and sisters, we can start to understand why, right? The earth, everything that we know of the earth is what we can see to the horizon. And then we experience a catastrophic flood. And then we need to try and make sense of that. So we write and we tell stories to try and make sense and to work out what happened and why it happened. And so again, we are faced with the kind of questions that we come to the texts with. We need to let go of sort of our modern scientific questions and begin to enter into the text and the story as it's told. And so what ancient writers did is they experienced a life-altering event and they wrote stories to point out why, not how. Okay? Ancient stories were written to explain why, not how. This is exactly what religious people do. To this day, right? Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, after the 2004 tsunami that took so many lives, pastors and faith leaders around the world sought to understand the role of God, the presence of God in the midst of tragedy, uh, kind of began asking faith-oriented theological questions about the character of God, the presence of God, God's activity in the world in light of this deep tragedy. Are you with me? Some of you remember that, right? And so pastors quite literally around the world were seeking to try and answer questions to make sense of this event. All the while, the scientific community was seeking to ask how and what and how can we predict this in the future so that we can provide warning, etc., etc. That's one example. The other example is this. We have all experienced a life-altering event in our own time in the pandemic. Pastors, spiritual leaders, immediately, right? Do you remember it? Like March 14th, 2020, when everything kind of shut down? 
pastors, spiritual leaders immediately started to wrestle with, explore, and talk about questions like, where is God in all of this? What is the role of the church? What is a Christian response to the pandemic? What does it mean to remain faithful? These kinds of questions kind of bubbled to the surface in the midst of a life-altering event. And, and to this day, Pastors, churches, spiritual leaders are wrestling with the answers to those questions, right? Wrestling with, seeking to answer those questions. And so those answers have had a huge impact, by the way. Like those kinds of questions and the way that we ask them and the, the conclusions that we come to have a huge impact on how we view God and how we view ourselves. But all the while in the midst of the pandemic... Scientists were seeking to decode the virus, understand how it spreads, how it attacks our bodies, who is affected by the disease the most, what treatments work or don't work, what strategies can we employ to prevent the spread, etc., etc., right? And so what I'm trying to point out is faithful people in the midst of life-altering tragedy and events begin to ask spiritual questions. While faith and science are asking different sets of questions, okay? And each set of questions is valuable in its own right. It would, be, it, would be, it would not be smart to say, because I'm a person of faith, then I want to ignore sort of like the scientific questions, right? Because they're asking different sets of questions. We can see the value in both and then seek to kind of bring them together. How can our faith inform what we see and how we handle the science? How can the science inform our own faith? They inform one another, but they're doing different things. Are you with me? <laughs> I said to buckle up, right? Okay. So faith and science were asking a different set of questions as they still do to this day. Each set is valuable uh, in its own right. But here's the deal when we go to ancient texts like the flood narrative. In the ancient world, there was no concept of science as we know it today. So after a life-altering event like a flood, all of the stories were written to communicate something about the God or gods that they served. So the biblical story comes to us from the ancient Israelite community which is to say that this scripture, this passage of the Bible, is seeking to answer questions about the character of Yahweh, specifically the God of Israel, the God of creation. So to ask of this text questions related to how or how much or anything like that is, not, is asking the text to do something it's not designed to do. Are you with me so far? So we come to this question, or we come to this text, seeking to understand what the ancient Israelites were trying to communicate about the God that they served. Okay, so let's now approach the text as an ancient person in their shoes, seeking to understand this. So place your shoes, place, put your, no, don't, Place your shoes right where they are. Do not do anything with your shoes, okay? But place yourself in the shoes of an ancient person. <laughs> like, one of the real disadvantages of podcasting and live streaming your service is things like that are then just cataloged forever. And you could just find a whole bunch of those 
throughout my ministry, you know? So it's just like you just got to embrace them for what they are and then move on. So leave your shoes alone, and instead let's place ourselves in the shoes of our ancient brothers and sisters. The world is everything you see to the horizon. Above you is a big blue expanse. You know that water appears blue. And so you assume there must be a dome above you that is holding back an ocean. You know nothing of what we know now as rain, but rather you live with a worldview that believes that God, for you are a faithful Israelite, or the gods of your neighbors are in fact the causing agent of everything that happens. You live with a worldview that the God you serve is the causing agent of everything that happens. If the harvest is good, then you assume that God has looked upon you favorably. If the harvest is bad, you assume God has seen fit to punish you. This is all you know of the world. And then the water in the skies breaks open and everything you know of the world is devastated. This was an act of God, you assume, for you have no other way of explaining it. So the question is, why would God do this? And what kind of God do we serve? What, in fact, is God like? It turns out this burning question of what is God like is just as prescient for people today as it was then. Take a look at how the scriptures answer this very question of what is God like. In verse 6 of Genesis, chapter 6, it says this, And the Lord God was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. In the story of Noah and the flood, we are presented with a God who is grieved at the state of creation. Now, verse 5 has declared that the heart of humanity is evil, inclined toward rebellion against God all of the time. And then verse 6 tells us that this grieves the heart of God. The picture we get in this narrative is not of an angry, distant God intent on destruction, but of a God who is grieved by the choice of humanity that God knows will bring harm. Renowned Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann says this, quote, God is not angered, but grieved. He is not enraged, but saddened. End quote. And so, devastated by a flood, our ancient brothers and sisters took stock of the world around them and came to see that God was grieved by a world that had become overrun by violence. The principal problem in humanity, as Genesis chapter 6 paints it, is that of violence run amok. That all of this violence is, is perpetrating in the world. And so this is what grieves the heart of God. That the world needed to be cleansed. And this is when we are introduced to Noah. We basically know nothing about Noah. As famous as Noah is, we basically know nothing about him. 
except for this. We know that Noah is called righteous. We know he is called blameless. And we know that he walked with God. And so Noah in the narrative is actually set up as unique among all of creation. The inclination of every human heart is evil continually, the scripture says. That's one of the more depressing verses in the Bible, would you agree? Right? And so this is, and then the world is overrun by violence, but there is Noah. He's righteous, he's blameless, and he walks with God. Noah is set apart as unique among all of creation in this narrative. In a world filled with pain, Noah represents new possibility, a new way of being. He embodies the truth, and I want you to hear this. Noah embodies the truth that faithfulness is possible, even, when, even in a world defined by violence and disobedience. In fact, if you want a word for today, where kind of secularism is, uh, is on the rise and so many people are kind of letting go of faith, you, you, recognizing church as maybe the relic of a bygone era, right? Maybe an age of unbelief, we might call it. How about this word? Noah represents for us that faithfulness is possible even in a world defined by violence and disobedience. Noah represents for us that faithfulness is still possible even in a world defined by unbelief. And so seen through the eyes of faith, this narrative is not so much about an angry God who destroys the world. This story told by our ancient uh, by the ancient faithful after a tragedy is about the grief of God and the emergence of new humanity. This story is ultimately about the grief of God and the emergence of new humanity. Now, I've, laid, I've, I've placed some Easter eggs around, but I think we can get there, right? So where in all of this do we find Jesus? First, we find Jesus in the person of Noah himself. That Noah sort of prefigures Christ. I am not saying the historical Noah is Jesus. I'm saying that when we read this passage, we can see Jesus prefigured in the person of Noah. The righteous one who represents a new humanity. The one who is the seed of a new humanity. The one who ushers in a new creation. The one who stands unique in a world that is filled with violence and disobedience. Right? That Noah himself represents a kind of Christ. But it goes actually even deeper than that. Um, the name Noah sounds a lot like a Hebrew word. Nuach. And the Hebrew word nuach, of which Noah is derived, means rest or comfort. Pandemic life has been hard. Um, Puder School District this week sent out a communication that said they're canceling the two days prior to the, the planned Thanksgiving break, so that Thanksgiving week is off, a whole week over Thanksgiving. And their stated reason was 
not enough staffing, but also respite, the need for rest, the need for mental health. And all the educators said, <laughs> right? And so we have sort of recognized on, on a community level, on a, on a school level, that this is exhausting. And so many of us are tired. Pandemic life is hard. But Noah prefigures Christ and means rest or comfort. It reminds me that Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. So we find Jesus prefigured in the person of Noah. Stick with me on this one. We find Jesus as the flood itself. Washing clean our uncleanness. Um, there, there is this sense in which leading up to this, this flood, the, the writers are pointing us to the reality that the world was, was very dirty. The world needed some cleansing. There was something that needed to happen, this event that would sweep away all that was unclean in order to make room for that which is new and clean and cleansed. Are you with me? Now, some of you are like, that's quite a stretch. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 Peter sees the flood of Noah as prefiguring God's baptism over the world. In other words, one of the first apostles, the biblical writers, invokes the image of the flood to talk about the cleansing of baptism. You see, sometimes when we... Some of you maybe are struggling a little bit with this reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and seeing Christ in all of these things. But this is exactly how the earliest Christians and apostles read the scriptures, where they read this flood narrative and said it was, it's Jesus himself providing a cleansing of the world, cleansing of our conscience, as First Peter will say. So the flood of Noah's day cleansed the world of corruption just as the baptism of the Holy Spirit cleanses us. And isn't it true that what we need maybe now more than ever is a cleansing of the Holy Spirit? What we need now more than ever is my sin, our sin, corporate sin, personal sin, systemic sin. What we need now more than ever is for that sin to be drowned in the waters of baptism. And so Jesus is represented to us or prefigured for us in the person of Noah. Jesus represents for us, or we can find Jesus in the flood itself, cleansing that which was unclean. And then perhaps my favorite image is this. Jesus is the ark that ushers in a new creation. You see, when Noah and his family entered the ark, they were in an old and corrupt world that was dominated by violence. Then they entered into something that was then ushered them into a new creation. So when they stepped into it, they had come from an old corrupt world dominated by violence. When they stepped out of the ark, they had stepped into a new creation filled with new possibilities. Amen and amen. 
right? And this is, in fact, this echo of creation and new creation is found in the text itself. Genesis 9, 1 and 2, which is part of what I read this morning. Noah is given a command to be faithful, to be fruitful and to multiply. And he's given dominion over all of creation. An intentional echo of the original vocation given in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so this vocation is given to care over all of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve. And then the world becomes corrupt and violent and and in rebellion against God. It, it, It experiences a cleansing through the flood. And then they are given a new possibility. Which then runs amok again very quickly. Right? And so they are in the beginning of a new creation, commissioned to care for the world in the same way Adam and Eve were. Noah and his family entered the ark and were ushered from old creation to new creation. And here's what I want to say. Of course we find that this new world is also corrupted very quickly, just as the old one was. There's a story, there's a part of the Noah story that we don't often tell, and we certainly don't tell in Sunday school, right? <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, read Genesis chapter 9. And you'll go, oh. <laughs> the preacher always left that part out, <laughs> which I am this morning. Okay, so uh, the old world, the new world was corrupted just as quickly as the old one. So that new creation, where Christ is all in all, begins in the ministry of Jesus and is fully inaugurated at his resurrection. So Jesus is the ark that carries us from the old world to the new world. This theme of creation, new creation, is found throughout Scripture. So much so that Paul will say, for those who are in Christ, you are a new creation. Those who have entered into the life of Christ are made a new creation. And if we look at that in the words of Paul, how can we help but see the ark as a Christ, as a prefigurement of Christ. We enter into the life of Christ by faith so that we can be ushered into new creation. So that we ourselves become evidence of new creation right here, right now. Pastor, author that I quote often, Brian Zond says this, quote, Jesus is the ark that carries the cosmos from corruption to new creation. End quote. So church, this story that challenges our moral sensibilities, in fact, also, if we learn to read it through the lens of Christ, can point us to the salvific work of Jesus in beautiful ways. To the work of salvation found in Christ in beautiful, beautiful ways. Jesus is prefigured in the person of Noah, the righteous one, unique among all of creation. Jesus is the waters of baptism, just like the the waters of the flood that cleansed creation. Jesus is the ark who ushers us in to new creation. Amen? Amen. Let me lead us to the Lord's table today. Gracious God, we are thankful for the words of Scripture. That so, uh, that so wonderfully point us to Jesus. Uh, even in this book of Genesis, the Old Testament can be filled with kind of some crazy stuff. And we can read words 
like Genesis 6, 5 and 6, that the inclination of all humanity was always evil and that continually. And so, God, you lamented creation and it grieved your heart. Those can be difficult words to hear. But God, may we read these words and maybe read this story through the lens of Christ today and come to see that the good news is embedded right here. That there is rescue from sin. That new creation is possible. That, that faithfulness is possible in a world of unbelief. And so God, I pray that the work of your Holy Spirit today in this place would encourage us, inspire us, give us new strength, new fervor, new energy for faith. Enliven our hearts, quicken our spirits, God, we pray. That we might know and be confident of what it means to be faithful in this time and in this place. And God, we also recognize today that <clears throat> the toll of pandemic life and the relational difficulties, sometimes divisions that it has brought about, the, um, and all the multi-layered kind of challenges that have come over the last several months, almost two years, have taken a toll. And we need rest. We need respite. I pray, God, that we would find that in Christ. In Jesus of Nazareth, who has said, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened, for there you will find rest. God, we pray for rest. We pray for healing. And we pray that you would meet us today at the Lord's table as we proclaim the actions of your passion, your death and resurrection. And as we remember that, we also pray, God, that it would be a means of grace for us, that it wouldn't just be a time of remembering, but it would be a, a time where you meet us here and fill our hearts, fill our, encourage our souls, give us precisely what we need. So Holy Spirit, be at work in this place, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.